I'm going to go ahead. Today, I'm talking with Joan Thorndike, founder of La Mira Gardens, an organic fresh flower farm that's part of the Fry family farm in Medford. Since the early 1990s, Joan has provided locally grown flowers to florist, floral designers, and for special events like weddings and other special events. Joan has been an advocate of the slow flower movement in the Rogue Valley. And I would have to say that her fresh flowers are the reason we don't have to buy flowers that are transported across the country with a huge carbon footprint. So thank you, Joan, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, well, I'm so thrilled to have you here. I was telling you that I have uh, done about five interviews so far, and I think three of them have mentioned you as being inspirational to their work in the world of plants. And it's because really you, are, you have been instrumental in providing fresh cut flowers to um, local folks. So I want to know, now I do know that you grew up in a family that loved flowers, but did you always know that you were going to grow flowers for a living, Joan? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, tell I me. studied biology and I studied international economics, you know, so I'm just warning everyone, keep your eyes open, even if you think you're on a certain track. <laughs> professional track. <laughs> so when was it that you decided you were going to change gears and get into the flower farming biz? Um, it, it was uh, happenstance as all good things, as many good things, you know, it's something appears in your world and you meditate for a minute. I wonder why this option is here and the best thing to do is embrace it. Um, I had small children, uh, my daughter's Camila, now 33, and Isabella, now 31, um, and they were three and five, and I needed to work, but I didn't have children to park them in childcare, um, so I needed to work outside the home at something where I could take them with me, and a good friend of mine said, I have this pasture just sitting there empty I feel like we should do something with it and she had a small she had small children too she said has, has it ever occurred to you to do maybe a you pick a raspberry you pick and I said no not at all <laughs> well what about <laughs> what about flowers hmm well I love flowers maybe we yes why not so we launched and we tilled up, we got a neighbor to come. And we didn't know anything about anything. Where was this, um, Joan? It was in Phoenix, Oregon. My okay. friend, Margaret Kaiser. Um, right on Fern Valley Road, in fact. Oh, okay. And she had lots of agricultural neighbors. So we begged and borrowed. You know, we went around and said, you, sir, you have a tractor. Could you come over and till for us? And, oh, and look at, you have a, a tiller. Could you help us? <laughs> um and, and our husbands, of course, had to step in and we just dragged our children around everywhere. But um, I, it, I do come from a background of flowers. My parents were both professionals, but my mother, I grew up in Chile, in Santiago, Chile, and my mother always grew a garden. She was very high up in the United Nations, but her passion, other than 
you know, camping with her family was gardening. And she was notorious for arriving at the office like 9.01 because she had dashed out of the garden, high heels in hand. And she always toured me around the garden, which honestly I hated because it just seemed to take forever. And she had to point out her flowers to me. But I think it got into my blood system and... You just didn't know uh, when, it at the time. <laughs> I didn't know it, exactly. I didn't know that. And um, she had what here we describe as the classic English garden, you know, a picket fence and things that bram rambled all over themselves and on top of each other and ferns and, and lots of things appropriate to whether they got shade or sun. I mean, Chile is a very wonderful place to grow plants. And she always said, you just stick some dirt and some, you just put some water on this dirt, you'll get something. I heard when I took the uh, Master Gardener program, gosh, it's been uh, 12 years ago, but I think I remember hearing somebody say that Chile, a parts of Chile actually has a, a climate somewhat similar to Southern Oregon. Is that true? Correct. Yes. Santiago, where I'm from, which is right in the middle of that long ribbon of a country, um, is exactly the climate of Medford. It's cold and rainy in the winter and very hot and dry in the summer. The only difference is what is Roxanne and the Grizzly Peak and all that in Chile is the highest place of the Rockies Andes mountain range. So we have this enormous mountain range and then the Pacific Ocean on the um, Western side, but it is very similar. Well, that must have been helpful um, years later when you're growing flowers in a climate yes. that's somewhat similar to what yes. you were used to. Correct. Yeah. Yes, because I realized that I have no, someone had suggested to me at one point, why don't you grow orchids? You'll make much more money and it's in a greenhouse. And I realized I don't, you know, you have to do what your heart calls you to do. And I have no affinity to, to that climate those flowers from that climate. I don't know them. We're not familiar with each other, but you're quite right that the climate was, it is so similar. Well, now when um, you started with your partner in Phoenix, um, this was in the early nineties and I'm sure there was no concept of buying local flowers here at the time. I mean, it would seem like people didn't even think about buying locally grown flowers. So how, how did you work to change that? I mean, that's a big <laughs> idea to get across to people. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, Margaret and I um, grew flowers for a year together. I was hell bent on selling them and getting them into people's hands. And I knocked on doors, I, I went to restaurants, I went to homes. I, I mean, anybody who stood still in front of me for a minute was going to be asked if they want to take home some flowers. Um, and it was an outrageous concept. And I surprised myself because I liked pushing them. I'm, I'm not, you know, I wasn't by nature a person who would get in someone's face. And also, I wasn't from here. I had moved five years before and spoke a different language. And um, maybe because of that, I had nothing to lose. Although my husband's mother, who was such a dear person and so kind to me, 
she did puzzle over this path I was on and she was known to say quite often, honey, how much longer do you think you'll be doing this? <laughs> and, <laughs> she really thought it was just a phase you were going through, huh, Joan? <laughs> yes, and it didn't feel like a phase to me. That's the odd thing. It didn't feel at all like a phase. So at the end of that year, um, Margaret and I decided we were better friends and business partners. And so I went searching for a place where I could do what we were doing and found the Eagle Mill Farm in Ashland on the north end of northeast end of Ashland and I went to the owner of the Eagle Mill farm because I knew there had been flower there had been flowers grown on that farm and the owner's Ron Roth and he said sure come on in find them they're over there in the weeds and so I hired a person and the two of us were blind to what was going on the weeds were waist high but but my my helper Poppy, she was bold. She said, well, I'm just going to run the mower through here and see what happens. And we started discovering all these perennials. And what I, and that was La Mera Gardens that I had stepped into. La Mera was, everyone asked me that weird name, and it is a weird name. Um, it's, it was founded by a man called Lenny White, who old timers who are gardeners here and old by old timers, I mean, people my age in their early sixties, know Lenny. Um, he was, he is famous for his gardening and his wife, Marilyn spelt with an M E. That's why it's La Mera, L E M E R A. And they had started a garden first in their home, which they named La Mera gardens. And then Lenny wanted to go bigger. So he rented, an acre and a third, which is what I then ended up um, renting from Ron Roth. And he moved down to Eagle Mill and he gardened there and he produced commercial flowers. And he is really who should get the credit for starting because he went to two flower shops in the valley to offer what he was growing. And he was way ahead of his time. We're talking mid to late 80s. Wow. offering locally grown and he grew he decided to specialize which is also out of the box for the time and he grew a lot of dried flowers I did the books you know once I took over then I started really taking care of my accounting and 60% of what he sold was dried flowers he had a barn that's a specialty barn for drying where the the roof of the barn is detached from the walls is an air gap and that's what allows for air circulation and for things and material in there to dry without incinerating. Note, hemp growers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and um, he went to what was then Flower Time on the Plaza and to Flowers by Susie, which nowadays is Penny and Lulu Flora right. Studio. And they were his big buyers because he grew Larkspur tremendous larkspur and he grew fantastic delphinium and peonies so he had these high-end flowers which florists really covet and and which are much better presented in a bucket than coming out of a box and by the time I met him also happenstance you know someone said oh you should meet Lenny White and I met him and he taught me about actually building a greenhouse or a hoop house a hoop house is an unheated, 
greenhouse, meaning it uses solar power, you know, the heat from the sun mm -hmm. to warm the, the interior. So it's no energy input. But he also was ahead of the curve because he built a, a hoop house so that he could grow Sweet William, which at that time was a very coveted sort of, let's call it a filler flower um, by the flower shops. And specifically, he aimed at Mother's Day. And Mother's Day, as we all know, is a huge festival of flowers. 99% of the flowers, especially at that time, 100% of the flowers came from somewhere else. And he grew an entire hoop house um, of Sweet William. And we're talking 1980s numbers. He told me you can get $1,000 in sale if you sell all your Sweet William in here for Mother's Day. They'll all come on at once and that'll pay your spring expenses. In farming, we have so much output in the spring months. You know, we pay for soil and amendments and, and just, just to throw out a number here on our farm, we spend $20,000 just on bulbs. Wow. So, and you have payroll and you have power and, you know, gas and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're very hungry by the time we get to, to start selling things. And Lenny had worked that out and taught that to me. Um, well, that, that is so fascinating that he was, he ended up being a mentor and you ended up leasing out the garden that he had established years before. Yes, that's correct. And he had, so it was lay abandoned for many years. And I was finding his treasures underneath in that lease, you know, when I leased from Ron Roth. Um, and I remember when I took over, I thought, okay, La Mera Gardens, nobody knows how to spell it or what it means. First thing we're doing is changing that name. But then I, I went back to those flower shops and both had the same reaction. Oh, you mean La Mera Gardens is back? And okay, that'll do. <laughs> I guess I'll stick with the name. That just because, <laughs> because the thing about growing, I think if you're going to grow anything commercially, and I get asked this question a lot, oh, you know, I have a piece of land, what should I grow? The question should not be what shall I grow, but what shall I sell? Because we all, all of us who enter this world of plants, whether it's growing a tomato or a tree or a fern or a flower, we're going at it because we love to grow. And there's lots of us who love to grow, but not all of us will have a market if we're going into it commercially, to be clear. If we want to have a garden, that's a different thing. But if we're going at it commercially, we have to ask ourselves, who's going to buy this? And what's my edge? Which 30 years later, I'm still working at what's my edge. Um, and you, it's important. What do you think your edge is now? My edge is now clearly my, my local market. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's to all my flower shops. The flower shops are, are now our clients. And that, although many of them, not all, but many of them have been my clients really since the beginning I was a PS to, the, to their shopping, uh, to their business plan. They, most flower shops get their flowers and not to mention big box supermarkets from, from somewhere else. And 
by that I mean it can be California, that's great, Washington, Canada, you know, but the majority come from overseas. And I want to be clear, I'm not dissing farmers overseas. They too need to make a living. They too are doing a beautiful job. But we need to ask ourselves in season, when we have the kind of growing season that we have here, which, I mean, we start ours in February, but that's because we have 12 hoop houses. But if you don't have anything like that, our season starts early and it goes very long. We just frosted last night, October 11th. October 11th. I marked that down too, because it was the first (laughs) time we had a light frost at my house as well. So, So, you know, that's a long season. And um, so if it's June, July, August, September, really, do you want flowers that came in a box from another continent. I mean, the one that everybody knows is Colombia because the Colombian grows beautiful roses, but Nigeria grows beautiful roses. Um, The Liguria area in Italy grows amazing ranunculus. Israel grows anemones, you know, so those flowers come from overseas and a lot of them go to the Dutch flower market, the biggest flower market auction, excuse me, it's a flower auction, the largest in the world. And it's several football fields big. And though it's sourcing flowers from everywhere, which come in boxes, are opened up, sorted, auctioned off, reboxed, and in the case of the United States, flown through US customs. Here in the West, they would come in through Miami or Los Angeles. The box is open again, inspected for moths and other problem insects, reboxed to go to the, let's say the Los Angeles flower market. And then Trader Joe's Medford puts in their order. Actually, no, big box stores are different. It goes to their warehouse in Texas or wherever it is. But Flower Shop X tells his or her broker in, at the, in LA, I want a box of this and a box of that, et cetera, et cetera. It gets reboxed, flown to the Medford airport where FedEx truck, brings it to their doorstep so it's been through a lot yes it has it has and do and it's a lot it's like 75 airplanes a day a week excuse me coming into the u.s that's a lot that is a and lot. is you know is that what we want and well, more no, and we more don't. people are are saying no they don't want that they are starting to value uh locally grown uh produce and locally grown flowers was there a, a moment in the last two, you know, two decades when you thought, you know what, this is this is really starting to happen now, the slow flower movement. I really do believe that it's catching on. Was there a time when you thought that or are you are you still thinking that it's it's still catching on or how do you feel about that? Well, for me personally, it was September 11th. I was on the field with Steve Fry, actually, and I was, and, you know, we all knew something had happened, and we both looked up at the sky, and there was a a plane going overhead, and Steve Fry is a Vietnam War vet, so that triggered a certain emotion for him, September 11th, but for me, I looked up, I mean, I'm from Chile, that also Anyway, I don't need to go into politics, but we too were bombed on September 11th. But um, I thought right then I had been toying with the idea that I needed to get much bigger to really make a living. Um, 
and and there were growers in the Pacific Northwest who were starting to ship to China. So we know that's a huge market, but it's very hard to enter the Asian market because we look more to the Pacific. Mm. You know, shipping to Europe makes no sense. Shipping to South America made no sense. So we were looking to the, to the Far East. And I was, of course, intimidated and terrified by the idea of figuring out a whole shipping system and, and so on. And, but looking up at that, I realized, wow, the whole distribution system is coming down as of today. Florists won't be able to get their flowers. I mean, it seems so trivial to even worry about that on that day, but it was what crossed my mind. And, and I also thought of grief and how flowers um, create a visceral reaction. When you present someone with flowers, A, it comes as a surprise and B, it's, it's truly a heart and visceral sentiment. You wanna bury your face in those flowers or you, it hits a chord. And I thought, no, I, I'm gonna grow here, but I need to teach Americans to love flowers. Um, and I need to get much better at what I'm doing because one thing is buying local, but you better make sure you're, you're growing a really good product. Nobody should have to say, I know it did, they didn't really last or they're not that pretty, but they're local, you know, mm -hmm. no, nobody should have to say that. So on that day, I decided I'm just going to get much better at this and I'm going to market better and just grow up. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't grow up too much. No, um, no, I haven't. <laughs> when, when did you decide to partner with um, Steve and Susie Fry? Oh, <laughs> that was actually around that time. I had farmed by myself for eight years. And in the winters, because I didn't have any greenhouse, a real greenhouse, you know, the place where you start plants. I used to buy a lot of seed, but you can't grow everything commercially from seed because you have such weed competition and you can't get ahead of the season. You want pretty robust plants by the time the season starts, meaning post-frost. Um, so I bought my flats from California where there are big uh, baby plant nurseries. Um, so the fries, I had met Susie Fry when I was looking for a particular flower called Russian status. And someone said to me, oh, you should go to Susie Fry. She, I think she grows that. So I was starting to learn who was growing things in the valley. And there weren't many people, but Susie grew them for dried flowers and her nursery. And she was going to market with flowers. And I met her and it was love at first sight. And our two youngest daughters jumped on the compost pile together, took off their shoes and started jumping in the compost pile. So I thought, wow. Something just happened. <laughs> and um, so I got a job with them in the winter, um, working in their greenhouses. And uh, I, so that I could learn greenhouse management because I knew nothing about that. And I said, should I keep track of, where do I keep track of my hours? And they said, you know, don't keep track of your hours. We don't do that. Um, at the end of our winter, you can take all the plants you need for your farm in trade. Oh, wow. Wow. So I, at first, uh, 
because I, I like to keep numbers in mind, I was keeping track of my hours that whole first winter. And I learned so much from just being in there. Um, and the spring came and they said, well, just come get your plants. And I made, I don't know how many trips in my Subaru loaded with flats of plants. And I planted my entire acreage and they never questioned it. Never. That was just was not a problem. And I did that for two or three years. And at the end of about the third year, March, spring break was when I would move over to my farm. Um, my girls were on holiday by then and I could use them to help me <laughs> a bit. And my husband always. And, and Steve Fry walked into the greenhouse and I said, well, Stevie, that's it. I'll see you next year. And he says, where are you going? Well, I'm going to my farm to do what? And I, I didn't know whether to, he was humoring me or insulting me. I'm going to grow my flowers. Well, you could grow them here. No, I, have, I, I lease a farm. Well, you could still grow them here. Well, what would that look like? And then Susie, who was standing there, she said, well, what that looks like is that you would have a lot more acres to harvest from. You can keep your customer base. And on Sundays, you know how you always have to go to your farm to check on the irrigation, make sure the greenhouse didn't blow over, or there's been a giant burst in the pipes. You'll just call Stevie and say, would you come fix this? That sold me. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> wow, that sounds like a wonderful deal for everybody. It was so great. And that was 20 years ago. And wow. I told my husband, Dan, I said, I think I just entered an agreement. And I told him and he said, well, sounds like reinventing corporate America. Go for it. <laughs> so that was 20 years ago and now you have 10 acres of um, flower fields and 12 hoop houses am I correct with that yes we might have more than that hoop wow. houses but yes so yes and, and you grow annuals perennials grasses shrubs just all kinds of different things how do you decide what to grow of everything that you know you could grow how how in the heck do you decide well you, you kind of mentioned it earlier what can you sell so yes so tell me what are the trends for um cut flowers now and how how have the tr uh, trends changed in the 20 years that you um, have been uh, there at the uh, Fry Family Farms? Um, it's a really good question. Um, for, to answer the beginning of your question, we are great at combing seed catalogs, just like every other gardener. We love that. Um, you get very tempted. I think over the years, we've become a lot better at, but you have to go through a schooling of experimenting for 20 years and wasting a whole lot of money on things that will not grow here to realize, oh, duh, I should only grow things that can be successful here, not trying to push the margins because it becomes so expensive. You know, I need to cover it or I need to fuss with it or hide it or put shade over it, take off the shade, put socks on the flowers, take them off. No, all of that takes away time. And it's just trying to to bend something that is not bendable. Um, so we look at zones, of course, and the zone is changed, the climate zone, and the climate zone has changed dramatically 
in 30 years. Um, I used to get a brush of frost. Of course, that was down by the Bear Creek. So that's a hollow, you know, a hole where it's colder. Mm -hmm. But I would get a lick of frost around the fourth week in August. And, wow. and now, as we just said, October 11th, we got a frost. I mean, I used to get a lick anywhere between the end of August, beginning of September. But that lick is, is decisive for a flower grower because annuals are severely affected by that little brushing with frost. The tissue is too fragile. So there's a breakdown there. And you shouldn't sell a flower that has tissue that's not healthy because it's going to show later. Perennials are better at lasting, but we all grow a mix. We have to grow a mix. Mm -hmm. um, so now we can, what we've done over the years is find different piece, places to grow. So we, for a while we had, we grew in Talent and in Ashland, and then we went from Talent and Ashland, we added Phoenix. Those are all different microclimates. And now we are in Ashland and Medford. Mostly we get booted, booted out of land that we, lease you know that's the the beauty of being an urban farmer that's what we are we're urban farmers is that we're right where the market is the downside is land is always shifting landlords change their mind pressures such as cannabis and hemp you know convince convince landlords that they can get a lot more money mm -hmm. um the one big thing is we are certified organic growers we guarantee that we will take care of the land but that's, you know, is that enough? <laughs> no, big money speaks more. Um, so microclimates are very important to us. And so when we choose what to grow, we think, well, this would not grow well in Ashland because it's going to get cold down there faster, but we could grow them in Medford where it's warmer. Um, and the trends are fabulous. They're, they're all over the place. Um, there's, I mean, now we have to grow a healthy variety of grasses. They are trendy. I have to say pampas grass is probably sticking around for more time than I would have given it a chance. Um, we, we grow a lot of it, but it's not my favorite, but we do grow a lot of it and people love it. Do you, what do you, um, do you grow it for the plumes or do you grow it yes, for the Yes, for the plumes. Okay. No, the plant is wicked and no one should plant it. It's invasive in California, very invasive. Therefore, it's going to be invasive here as we dry. Mm -hmm. um, we, we lease a, land, a piece of property that's very old, like 100 years old. And so the plants that are on there, the pampas are enormous. I mean, they're as tall as a greenhouse. Mm -hmm. They were planted a long, long time ago. Um, but I would not plant new pampas by any means. Um, you know, we have to be very conscious of invasive species. We've never really gotten anything to be invasive. Somehow we fail at that mint, but we love stepping on mint, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got some invasive mint in my garden too. Right, but it's so nice to walk on it. You make it sort of a lawn. It's great. Um, and I think the trend that I try to teach is to be seasonal, to, to be observant of what's around you. And it's the feeling of, of going with what 
your natural season has to offer is the kind of joy you see on a small child when he or she tries the first strawberry of the season. Um, it's, again, I go back to the word visceral, but we, it resonates with us. You know, we should be looking for tulips in the spring, not in September. Um, we should be looking for peonies at wedding time, May and early June. You know, don't, you know, when someone asks me, can I get peonies in October? Fortunately, I don't, we're not allowed to buy from anyone. We can only sell what we grow, but thank God, I don't want to start looking for peonies in October. Right. It's not, we have so many other beautiful things and it's working. It's working Rhonda because we sell to so many DIY weddings. And at first, I'd say for the first 10 years, it involved a big conversation about, I always ask, what would you like? You know, what's your color palette? What's your dream flower? Just to make sure we were on the same page. Oh, it was white lilies and so on. And I spent a lot of time explaining that our white lilies, we only grow them at a certain time of year and making excuses. And then finally it dawned on me, no, we just don't grow them. They're not available. And it was a way to sort ourselves out. Are we the right source but of flowers for that person? But now I'd say 100% of the people who call to say they want to get flowers from us for their wedding are 100% into seasonal. And that's a big victory. We have yes, four weddings just this week. Wow. wow. <laughs> and those are people who took, the people who are getting married this week and next week took a huge risk because two of those are very large weddings. They booked with me in May. And I said, look, we're in an extreme drought. We have no idea if we're going to keep getting irrigation water. And October is frost season. Never mind. One woman said to me, it's you or Costco. <laughs> well, it definitely has to be you. Right. So what, what, <laughs> Tell, tell me what your favorite fall wedding bouquet would be, would consist of. Well, I had a big wedding shopping session this morning, and I can tell you that wedding party bought amaranths, um, both a bronze. We grow this rusty colored amaranth, and, and amaranths have a plume, a big plume, mm -hmm. and and then uh, amaranth that we grow that's called Hopi dye, as in the Hopi Nation. It's a, a burgundy, um, beautiful, dark, dark burgundy. And the stem, the leaf, and the panicle, the flower, it's not really a flower, are burgundy. And then they bought hydrangeas. And they were very nervous about the hydrangeas because everybody knows hydrangeas wilt. But at this time of year, they've hardened. They turn papery. So I, I had them both, the groom and the bride, touch them and say, look, don't be afraid of these. Touch them. They're, they're like paper. They'll be just fine. And we, in particular, there were two kinds of hydrangeas, an Annabelle, which is white in the summer and turns green now. And then one called the limelight, which I think is, should be a favorite garden plant because limelight hydrangeas have such a beautiful shape. They're woody. They throw out long canes and the blooms are amazing. And wow. they go from, from lime to white to blush to now a papery, creamy, 
rich pink almost. Wow, sounds lovely. They're beautiful. And they bought that. And then they bought globe amaranths, which are round. And they're also in the amaranth family. Um, they're in everlasting as well. Um, and they bought garden roses. I am crazy about our garden roses. They're the hardest flower we grow. We make zero money on them because we have to fuss over them but I love them with all my heart when you say garden roses Joan what what type of roses are you talking about specifically you're talking about roses that would grow in your own garden meaning they do not have a straight stem that's 15 inches long and look identical they have character they have scent they will last anywhere between two days and a week to 10 days. Um, they do not need to be wired to keep their heads up. And they will go from a bud form to a fully open peony, not even peony-like, I mean, just open. Um, they n- almost no two are alike. And you, you adhere to uh, a type of garden rose. So I got all my rose mentoring from a man who used to live here. His name is Gary Pellet. He was a rose breed. He is a rose breeder. He's retired now. Um, and he, he represented in the U.S. a, a German company called Cordes, K-O-R-D-E-S. Um, and that is the German, the Western European style of garden rose. And its brother or sister or twin are the David Austin roses in England. So these are Cordis and David Austin are the two big breeders of garden roses that can be used as a cut rose because not all roses make a good cut. You know, they and by that, I mean, they can't absorb water. They don't know how to drink water once off the plant. They don't say that again. Uh, that that a, a rose or any plant, any flower becomes a cut flower or a cut rose or a cut grass or a cut greenery if it has the ability to drink water after being cut, removed from the plant after being cut off. I um, see. And that so anybody. I encourage everyone to use their window box or their little planter or their garden to all year long, go out and cut something, cut two or three things of something. It doesn't matter if it's a weed. The weed is in the eye of the beholder and bring it inside and, and watch it, live, live with it, put it on your kitchen table, put it on your, the sill of your next to your sink. doesn't matter. Having a living a living plant, not, I'm not saying a potted plant, I'm saying a cut plant is such a, a wonderful, rich experience because it has a lifespan. It goes from birth to senescence. So do we. And so having it in your home where you've gone out, you've cut it. My mother was notorious about stealing plant flowers. Very bad influence. I'm not encouraging that, but... You know, unless it hangs over the fence. <laughs> but it's fair game. Yes. Okay. So, so going, oh dear. So going back to, you know, what makes it a garden rose, what makes it a, a cut flower, it's that. It's, it's something, ability to drink water and stay alive for a few days. They don't all. 
people who come for, to us to buy their flowers for a wedding often say, I don't want any greens. My, my uncle has, uh, you know, I don't know, land full of trees. I say, okay, that's great. So go try them before your wedding day. Cut every sample that you like, cut it, put it in water, deeply in water and see if it lasts at least more than a day because there's nothing worse than making a flower arrangement and something droops. Somehow your eyes go to that droopy one. Even if it's just one out of 25 flowers. Hmm. So <laughs> well, I think that's very good advice for people to you know, try out uh, the plants that they are, are thinking about using. And I love the idea that people can come right there and look at the flowers that they're thinking about using for their wedding. I just think that's a, um, a, a terrific uh, thing to be able to offer. Well, then you take ownership of your flowers. But I will say in the same breath, it's very important to say this. People come on the day they're going to purchase their flowers. They don't come before. And the reason is not because we're mean, but A, we're short of time. And B, most importantly, you might come to, you know, you, Rhonda, want to see what flowers there will be on the week of October 11th. So you come on the week before. And last week, we had an assortment of flowers. And this week, it'll be different because the sun is going down in the horizon. It triggers different flowers. It, differ, it triggers different colorings. And it triggers some to go into full senescence, to be done. The, they're over. So it's a guaranteed disappointment if I invite you to see flowers too soon. Mm. You're going to somehow, it has happened, People come a week early and they glob on to the one flower that's not going to be available next week. But <laughs> of course, it's the strangest thing. And by the same token, you miss out on something that's going to start this week. Right. You know, so it's a it's it is trust. There's a lot of trust involved in our clients. Um, taking the risk, but I walk them through it and I have a live online calendar that people can look at and I do want to you know just just make it super clear that I live we we run our farm so much on the base of all the flower shops that buy from us here we have florists who come from Mount Shasta, Etna, Klamath Falls and all over the Rogue Valley, Eagle Point, Central Point, Medford, Ashland, Talent, and they are, they're my staple because we could have four weddings like we do this week, but we could have zero weddings mm -hmm. and we still have flowers. We still have to harvest them. You can't leave them on the plants. So I just want to do a shout out to, to how far we've come in this valley that I can be sustained by the business the flower shops send our way and it's not all of them as i said at the beginning i don't we our flowers do not meet everyone's business plan but a lot of them and they're listed on my website <laughs> <laughs> of all of the flowers that you grow john i know this is going to be a difficult question to answer but is there one or two flowers that really strike you as your favorite to grow 
Well, you just narrowed my field. You said to grow. So that's a good question. <laughs> um, what, what flowers really excite you when you see them coming up? Well, that is a little like asking who's your favorite child. <laughs> and I have about 200 favorite children. Um, I, I wearing my hat of a provider of flowers there's one way to look at your favorite flower, you know, which one is the one that makes the most revenue for us. And it's delphiniums, it's sunflowers, it's eucalyptus. We grow a lot of eucalyptus, hmm. freshly cut twice a week. Um, it's ferns um, and it's lisianthus. Which one is my favorite? I just go back to the experience of seeing the first spring anemones come up. They, we grow them in hoop houses, so they'll start earlier. But I tell you, cutting those first anemones, they're exactly three inches tall. Not good for anybody except for me. <laughs> and I take them home and they will grow up to two inches just in water those very first one, they're so active, they're still coming up and they, okay, you gave me water, I'm out of the soil, but that's all right, I can do this and they'll grow. Huh. Um, and in the summer, it's our roses, which are a pain, I'll tell you, because one week we have lots, the next week we don't have any and, and growing them organically is so difficult. It's such a challenge. Um, but I think my favorite is the whole field. When you get there bleary-eyed in the morning, you look out to the field, there's not one you're not happy to see. Oh, I think that's a, that's a lovely picture in my mind of seeing you go out in the early morning and looking out on at all of the flowers in your field. What Now, I know that this year, the last couple of years has, has got to have been a, a huge challenge for you um, with uh, the COVID, the pandemic, and um, all of the, the, the heat wave and, and the, um, the smoke and how were you very affected um, by the uh, water shortage? Very, very. Like every farm in this valley, mm -hmm. um, you, for, for us, we were very fortunate. We lease a property in Ashland. Well, for us, I should start by saying we were very fortunate because we could keep going. I know so many farms that didn't even start knowing they wouldn't have water. Mm. And that's an unimaginable pain, mm -hmm. not to mention fear. And I have friends who are farmers who are contemplating selling their farms, having been farmers for 30 years here. It's and it's so, hard, it's so tough because this situation is not going away. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, we're, you know, we just keep pushing it. Um, the drought for us, we knew we could a start. So we, we planted and Steve Fry says, Oh, just believe in the future. We're charging ahead. We're planting a thousand of this and a thousand of that. And I ride on that. That's very helpful for me. So I don't go into my doomsday thing. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we also knew from the lease that we have in Ashland that we have a very, very old water right. 
So we could keep going as long as that water right served us, but it too, water is, is finite everywhere. Um, and it made us, like every crisis, it made us more efficient. We were, by, we were restricted by the water master. We leased 30 acres on this particular field. We were allowed to farm 12. So it made us a lot more aware of, okay, what matters here? And how should we water it, you know? And, and maybe we don't need to water this part. Um, so that helped. And in Medford, we irrigate from very, 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 very carefully. It's a whole different water system mm. in Medford. But we did keep going. And now we really notice leaks. You know, if there's, I don't know, an emitter that had come off before, we'd say, oh, gosh, that's, well, that plant's just going to get more water. Now I go back there. I take a photo. I send it to Stevie. Fix this. And um, so that's been better. The smoke is an enormous challenge. We wear respirators, which when you wear a respirator for 12 hours outside is exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's hurt your neck. Um, you know, you look bizarre. You look like a Martian, but you can breathe. And that's super important because you're exerting. It's a hundred degrees. You have to be able to breathe. And I'm sensitive to the effect the smoke has on our florists uh, who are dealing in perishable goods on all the weddings, people who've dreamt of getting married, you know, and now they've got smoke to deal with. Yeah. Um, and then the pandemic, the pandemic was really uh, a great life, uh, an exercise in living for us where I would say for the most part, we, I found myself extremely fortunate because I work outside. We work on a farm that produces a lot of organic produce. So we were considered, you know, go ahead work. Uh, we need to feed and flower our community. So we came to work every day. Um, going back to what I said at the beginning, one thing is growing, you have to be able to sell. So, in my flower shops, they were on the edge, you know, what's going to happen. All Our weddings canceled, like, boom, 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 one okay. after the other. Mm -hmm. They were all canceling. Um, so I, I had to, okay, come up with a tactic, because here we have all these flowers. So part we shipped to Portland, to um, New Seasons Market, and that took up a lot of flowers, the market at least is bigger, but I still, I'm all about flowering our community and shopping cart in Ashland was the first grocery store that ever bought flowers from me hmm. 30 years ago. I went to Jerry Kappas, who's still the produce manager. And I remember, cause I used to shop there and I said, Jerry, would you, would you carry flowers? What am I going to do with flowers? I don't know. You just put them out in a bucket and that's what people do in other parts of the U.S. They buy flowers in the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And he was so dear. He said, well, you know, he says yes to the Boy Scouts bringing blueberries. So he said, Psh, okay. 
let's put some out. But I have no idea what I'm going to do with them. Well, I'll take care of them. And within two days, he called me and says, well, those five bunches you left, they're all gone. So now what do I do? I said, oh, I'll just bring you five more. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then later it was, well, your edge is that they're certified organic. But um, I went to him again when the pandemic hit. And I said, Jerry, what are we going to do? He said, well, the word is nobody's going to buy flowers, but why don't you bring me a bucket? Let's see what happens. And everybody started buying flowers. It, the pandemic had an, a, a tremendous effect on flower purchases. The florist did so well because we couldn't go out and buy a knickknack to give somebody as a present, but we could sure get on the phone and order uh, a ray of sunshine, a piece of joy, you know, flowers. Wow, it, what a lovely was... story. I'm, I, I have to say that I, I'm surprised to hear about this. I thought I was going to hear a woeful tale of, mm -hmm. you know, the things that how bad it was during the pandemic. But you really are sharing a, a totally different perspective than I had, um, I had thought. About it was amazing. And fries, the fries, you know, nobody was going anywhere. Well, we have a farm store, which is on Ross Lane in Medford. Mm -hmm. And they made bouquets for the farm store. And people could just pull up and they say, you know, really what I want is I want to give my aunt some flowers and she can't leave her house. So I'm going to take them to her. Could you just hand them to me? We did curbside. We did. I was back to you're, you're there, I'm going to sell you some flowers. <laughs> when I was back to my old schooling um, of, of treating flowers as a real gift. And they're from here. And I don't need to go into the whole um, guilt tripping of, but you're employing people who are here and it's this soil and we're saving it from having houses built on it. I don't even need to go there anymore. I can just say, here's some flowers. They're fresh. They, we just picked them this morning. They'll make someone happy. Oh, and we grow a lot of herbs. That, I, I, when you ask me what, what, what we grow, you know, grasses and trends and all that, mm -hmm. um, ornamental herbs are really helpful because they have a scent. And again, when people grab a bouquet, they stick their nose in it. Mm -hmm. And I, very often I think, oh my gosh, the amount of pesticides you're just breathing in, but okay. Um, <laughs> But if you grow, not if they buy your flowers, no. <laughs> and I'm trying to encourage everyone to be aware of that incredible reaction that we all have when you present someone with flowers. You just watch people, even the ugliest flowers, they'll stick their nose in there. So make it something gentle and safe for everyone. And herbs, if you like right now, rosemary is still thriving despite the frost so you make a bouquet and you put a little bit of rosemary in there and it's amazing it does it just does something it helps so much well you certainly have helped in, in, in providing just knowledge not only the flowers themselves but I think the knowledge that local seasonal flowers are the way to go so thank you for your work with plants Joan Thank you, Rhonda. Thank you so much for this opportunity.